Welcome to Joy in Learning, a podcast from the Harley School in Rochester, New York. We're an independent school for nursery through grade 12, where there's always lots of interesting learning going on for us to share with you. For this episode, I spoke with Mark Zupan, former Harley parent and board chair and current Alfred University president, about his new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Enjoy. I am here with Mark Zupan, president of Alfred University, and we are going to be talking about his new book uh, after we hear a little bit about his role uh, and involvement in the Harley School. Mark, thank you. Welcome to the show. Mark, delighted to be with you. I'm the proud parent of two sons who are both Harley graduates, uh, Will, who graduated in 2010, and Walker in 2014. Harley definitely prepared him well for post-high uh, school um, life, and uh, there's a saying, you're just as happy as your least happy child, and thanks to Harley, I'm a very happy parent. I also had the honor of serving on the board uh, for nine years, uh, including board chair and chairing uh, the search process that brought us our current head, Ward co-chairing, uh, with Peter Wilsey that brought us the current head, Ward Gorey. Great. Well, that that actually answers my first question. I I know that you had a lot of involvement with the school over the years. Next question is where, where do you what do you see the current role of Harley in sort of the greater Rochester community? First and foremost, uh, transforming student lives and identifying their passions. Uh, I saw this uh, whether it was co-curriculars or curriculars. Um, Harley Harley did a marvelous job with my two sons, but then also providing a role model to the greater community, whether the work we do with Horizons or the example we set with sustainability or mindfulness. uh, They're examples that are powerful that uh, Harley has a proud tradition of setting, and it impacts our broader community. Great. Thank you for that. So I I do want to talk about your book. That's really the main reason that you're here. Uh, It's called Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. Can you give me just sort of a brief overview of what the book's about? Sure. Um, It was published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. It's available in the typical outlets like Amazon. Um, What it looks at is an age-old question, why do societies, why do nation states succeed or fail? And historians have long studied this. Poets have been fascinated by it. Uh, um, sociologists, political scientists. I'm an economist by training, and we've come late to this question. We've really started looking closely at this largely over the last half century. And like so many things we characterize, we, we have a market-based approach of looking at things. And so when we look at politics, we envision a market where there's both a supply side and a demand side. And the way we cast the model in our uh, conception is the supply side's composed of people who have the ability to rewrite the rules, whether they're elected officials, whether they're monarchs, whether they're bureaucrats, uh, whether they're uh, otherwise involved on the supply side of the state. And by changing the rules, they create wealth transfers. And on the demand side, the other side of the equation are people that would like to see favorable um, rules changes so that they can benefit either from a pecuniary or non-pecuniary perspective. 
And so when we've seen societies go awry for largely because um, we'll argue in the book, it's uh, when this model's grown up over the last half century when democracy's been on the rise. So the democracy, the democratic approach has been the way we've looked at the world and and uh, tested out this model. And when things go awry, we've tended to look at the demand side of politics, that uh, it must be some interest group that's co-opted the system for their benefit. And the first conception of it was to look at producers. They're more concentrated than consumers. So um, the person, the economist, George Stigler, who won a Nobel Prize for this uh, initial work, was very similar to Karl Marx in his conclusion that producers or capitalists would co-opt the state for their benefit at the expense of broader society. And, And certainly we can find examples where that's happened. But then people would point to cases like rent control or pharmaceutical pricing restrictions on pharmaceutical drugs. And it was hard to cast that outcome as producers winning. So the model got broadened over time to include the potential for consumers to co-opt the system, for environmentalists, for one percenters, for economic elites. But the general emphasis remained on the demand side. What the book argues is we can't forget the supply side, that had we been looking at the world 200 years ago when democracy was virtually non-existent, uh, when autocracy was the governance model of choice around the world or imposition around the world, um, it would have been the view that the supply side when we uh, had a crack up was the one that was driving that crack up. And what the book emphasizes is both democracies, in democracies and in autocracies, we can't neglect the supply side. Whether they're monarchs, whether they're elected officials in democracies or bureaucrats or employees of the state or the military, there's the potential to uh, co-opt the system. They're individuals, too, and they're they're capable of very um, uh, noble acts, but they're also capable of less than noble acts. And when the less than noble acts and and when there are not enough restraints on their behavior, we can get very untoward outcomes. And through the book, uh, it, it allows us to see, I think, in a better way uh, what the current struggles we are dealing with in the world from autocracies as well as democracies. Uh, when we look at Venezuela, for example, or North Korea, classic cases are Russia, where it's the supply side that seems to be dri- driving those untoward outcomes, people within the state. Um, But even when we look at democracies, we can't be smug in the United States uh, or in India or in Brazil, some of the current challenges, whether you're from the right or from the left and worries are the people inside the state actually uh, producing the outcomes we'd like to see and to what extent can we can we trust uh, those outcomes? And and, and just uh, one factoid to share before the Stop Trading and Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012, there were two studies done the previous 15 years. The average senator's Republican or Democrat uh, asset portfolio appreciated at 12 percentage points more than the stock market. So there seemed to be something wow. about being in Washington, proximity, power, knowledge about what's going on, that, or maybe we're just electing incredibly wise financial mavens, uh, even better than Warren Buffett. Uh, in a companion study looking at members of the House of Representatives, uh, their portfolios outperformed the market by six percentage points a year. And to, uh, if you found a financial advisor with that kind of performance, you'd be doing cartwheels. So, so even in democracy, 
democracy, uh, work remains to be done, what are the checks and balances? And this issue goes back to our founders. Uh, Madison in Essay 51 of the Federalist Papers said, you know, the first thing we've got to do is set up an effective government. But then uh, since people aren't angels, we've got to develop the checks and balances on how we can control those in power. And then the last point, while the book focuses on politics, there's some implications for organizations uh, beyond the political arena, whether they're nonprofits like universities or the United Way, or whether they're even corporations. When we look at iconic organizations like Kodak, why did they break down? To what extent were were there uh, demand side changes or decisions on the supply side internal to the firm that drove the demise of those organizations? What inspired you on a personal level to write this book? Was it was it personal interest? Was it things that you saw through your background that sort of led you in this direction? Um, I had a wonderful mentor in college uh, who turned me on to economics. I had the pleasure and honor of working on a couple of research papers with him. And we at the time in the 80s were looking to apply the economic model to individual issues like coal strip mining. And we were intent on proving this model worked. And so we went in to the analysis, having one set of hypotheses, and the data kept coming back saying the hypothesis can't hold water to the extent you'd like to believe. And we came to the conclusion that even on an issue like coal strip mining, when we tried to explain it with pocketbook interests within a senator's state, uh, whether it's uh, coal consumer interests, coal producer interests, environmental interests, they had explanatory power, but far more appeared to be a potent explanation driven from senators' own ideological uh, non-pecuniary interests. It was amazing, for example, for us to explain to what extent to, or to show or that we showed uh, to what extent a senator's vote on coal strip mining could be explained by his or her vote on abortion legislation. Wow. So that that led us back and said, well, maybe on an individual issue, we're not having a perfectly competitive market for how senators vote. But maybe what happens, there's greater competition at election time when we put the ideologues into office and they, they can be vastly different ideologies of Barry Goldwater or Ted Kennedy. So maybe that's where the competitive bite holds. But we found even at uh, election time, uh, there was considerable latitude among uh, the bundles we put into office and to the extent to which we could relate it to underlying constituent interests. So, uh, and, and when we look at autocracies too, uh, while we can certainly point to kleptocracy where people have tried to rifle the state for their own benefit like the Marcoses, but more damaging has been um, autocrats uh, pursuing their ideological goals, whether it was a Chairman Mao or a Hitler, and the damage uh, that would do to their nation and, and uh, the broader world in many cases. So uh, non-pecuniary interests um, in autocracies as well as democracies matter, um, the non-pecuniary interests of uh, folks on the supply side. Wow. So what are the key takeaways that you would like your audience um, to, to have an understanding of when they're when they're finished with your book? Yeah, it's the first book to show that uh, because people always point to well, autocracies like Singapore seem to have great growth. Um, the citizenry seems satisfied. There seems to be trust in government. Those are the exception. If uh, you want to bet on a form of government, uh, 
hands down, you want to bet on democracy. So our founders got it right looking at past governance forms and what to learn from them. That said, and, and democracy has been on the rise for the last two centuries, so we should take heart from that. On the negative side, our work uh, isn't finished. Uh, the When we look, at least on the Transparency International score, it's the leading watchdog group over the last two decades of uh, individuals' trust in their government through a variety of different measures. Um, the average democracy on the zero to 100 scale where zero uh, indicates perfectly corrupt, 100 uh, perfectly clean, the average democracy doesn't get to the midpoint. <laughs> it's higher than the average for autocracy by about 50%, but uh, uh, there are very few democracies in the world that score above 90 or above 80 or above 70. And then a quarter of the democracies in the world are dem democratic in name, but there's less public sector integrity than the average autocracy. So just having a democracy, and, and so on the negative side, uh, we can't assume that government by the people equates to government for the people. And so we, whether we look at uh, what's going on in Washington right now or Al Albany, uh, we should still be looking at what are the checks and balances to make sure that uh, we get more government uh, for the people. And that, that perfectly leads me to my last question, which is uh, obviously this is going to be concerning to folks, at least I would hope so. Uh, what can people do outside of just your standard go vote? Uh, if someone's concerned about this, uh, how, how can we start to, to affect change? And the last chapter uh, talks about uh, what can we do? And it's like Dorothy with uh, realizing she's wearing the red slippers. Uh, in a democracy, the power's resident and the people to find other institutional checks and balances. Among them, uh, taking a relook at term limits. When you look at our own state of New York, we've lost over the past couple of years the second most powerful policymaker and the third most powerful policymaker. One was a Republican and one was a Democrat. And the malfeasance in both cases, it's hard not to relate to how long they had been in office and the absence of checks and balances. So for the same reason we instituted term limits on our president at the national level, uh, so to avoid people. And, and the wonderful example uh, Washington set by instituting a, initially an informal practice of serving only two terms. So we need to think about uh, institutional mechanisms. As an economist, uh, we look at antitrust policy. We, we don't want uh, economic power too concentrated, but we need to worry to the mechanisms that concentrate public sector uh, power. Uh, those uh, restraints have been loosened since the 1960s. Uh, the state of Illinois for a couple of years didn't have a budget. Their unfunded pension liabilities were for, grew to 450% as large as the annual state tax revenues because um, uh, that sector became unionized. It was easier for governors or mayors to kick the can down the road uh, to promise uh, uh, generous pension benefits, but leave it to the next generation of mayors and governors to figure out how to pay for it. And uh, there has been an epic struggle uh, the last few months. Uh, Illinois finally reached its first budget through some compromise activities and s some cutbacks on uh, public sector spending as well as tax increases. Uh, Paul Krugman writes in the New York Times that Detroit was an anomaly. Uh, we'll strenuously disagree with them. What we see right now in Puerto Rico, uh, three cities have failed 
um, in the in the state of California. Uh, we have issues in Houston and Dallas, even before uh, Harvey came through, of uh, public pension unfunded liabilities, and would those cities be able to afford? And up here in upstate New York, uh, many of our major metropolitan areas uh, are faced with some of the same challenges or the neighboring state of Pennsylvania. Well, Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. I know you're a super busy guy, uh, but for folks who are interested in this, uh, you can check out Mark in our next Common Speaker series. uh, And I, for one, am really looking forward to it. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today on Joy in Learning, the Harley Schools podcast. We look forward to sharing interesting stories, discussing educational topics, and exploring ideas with you on our next episode. See you again soon.